1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Men, this room uh, is a room of survivors, (laughs) right? Like you guys have all heard about this plague like going through. Uh, I feel like a bunch of people in our church family are just uh, uh, out for the count. We were supposed to have child dedications this morning. uh, And we had some some families uh, have to have to pull out because their other kid was sick or the kid they were dedicating was sick and 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 all this stuff. And um, man, I've never been so sick in my life. Like, like I remember, you guys remember when like everyone were, were like all the COVID skeptics were like, ah, oh, it's just another flu. Um, dude, if I knew that it would be like this flu, I'd be like, all right, I'll stand 12 feet away. Just, like, just tell me what to do. Um, I like reverted back to my inner child uh, this week. After the wedding, after the, uh, Michaela and, and Andrew's wedding, uh, I, I, I crawled into bed uh, and stayed there until like Thursday. So... Um, so don't worry, I'm fine, not contagious, I tested for all the things and I'm good now. Um, but we have a tough text in front of us uh, tonight, don't we? Uh, sometimes you have a passage of scripture that's uh, hard, hard because it's uh, hard to understand. Uh, sometimes you've got a passage of scripture that's, uh, that's difficult or, or, or hard because it's, it's hard to, to understand and to apply it. And this passage is kind of both of those. Right? Uh, So we got our work cut out for us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started in the text. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you even that your word makes us uncomfortable, uh, that you so often come in and just show us, reveal to us that the way that we think um, is not the way that we should think, that your ways are higher than our ways, that you know things uh, that we haven't even begun to think about. And so we recognize that, that these are not the words of men, but these are the very words of God. And so by that, Holy Spirit, would you teach us by that word and help us to receive it joyfully and see Jesus more clearly. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, so we'll fly through this. Hopefully my, my voice uh, lasts through our time together since my throat was like ravaged from all the coughing earlier in the week. But um, listen, this is one of the most, actually, this is the most uh, controversial part of the entire book of 1 Timothy, all right? Uh, It talks about gender roles in the church, gives us some instructions for men, but the focus is primarily on women and what they can and cannot do in the church. Uh, Not exactly a hot topic in our cultural climate, right? Uh, Then there's talk about women being saved in childbearing, like what's that all about? And so uh, we are going to talk about this text. And look, many people are turned off by Christianity. They're turned off by the Bible, by the scriptures, because of misunderstandings that are related to verses like this. But as we've mentioned before, if you're going to reject Jesus, 
If you're going to reject the church, if you're going to reject Christianity, uh, then hey, let's make sure uh, that you're actually going to reject uh, Jesus, his gospel, his church. You want to make sure that you're rejecting uh, true understandings, right understandings of those things and not a misunderstanding of those things. And so what we need to realize is that this paragraph of scripture does not appear out of nowhere, all right? It doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't stand alone. What I mean by that is at least a couple things. First, remember that this passage does not stand alone in the book of 1 Timothy, all right? So while this passage helps flesh out some things, this is not the primary point of 1 Timothy. There's a context here. And as we've talked about uh, again and again is that the theme of 1 Timothy is that we are, we are looking at a blueprint for the household of God, a blueprint for the church. The idea is that the church should have order, just like a household should have order. And in a household's order, uh, we have different roles and responsibilities that look different from one another, and so it is with the church. And in order to understand God's best for us as the church, in order for us to understand what God's best might be for us as a community of Jesus, we need to sort of wrestle with texts like this one, which talk about gender roles in the church. Second, this passage doesn't stand alone in terms of its cultural climate, all right? So it doesn't exist on a cultural island in and of itself. It involves words that were written from uh, the apostle, Pastor Timothy, to, uh, or Paul rather, to uh, uh, his son in the faith, Pastor Timothy, uh, in the first century. And it speaks into certain uh, sort of ideas and rhythms and customs uh, that were happening at the church there in Ephesus. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that what we're about to read only applies to them. Okay, this is scripture, and we're told that scripture is useful. All of it is useful for our teaching and for our our correction today, for our training in righteousness. And so, and so, uh, it's useful for us because it's scripture. But if we want to understand how. A passage like this, a strange passage like this, if we want to understand how it's useful to us today and to all of God's people throughout all time, then we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are first writing and hearing these words so that we can understand it from, from their perspective. And only then can we begin to draw out the timeless sort of principles and apply it to our church today. Does that make sense? All right. So that is always a big part of the process when we are studying the Bible. That's always a huge part of the process when we're studying the scriptures. If you do just a cursory read of the passage, you'll notice that there are some background cultural things that are gonna be important for us to understand, right? You get a sense that the men in the church are getting into fights with each other, that that's been a problem. You get the sense that some of the ladies in the church have a dress code sort of issue as well. Uh, so we're going to have to get into what, what, what did that cultural context look like in order to understand what's really going on here. Now, here's the bottom line. Bottom line is this. Here's the main idea for our, our text this afternoon, is that men and women are created equal in value and worth but are uniquely distinct in their roles and responsibilities, all right? Men and women are created equal in value and worth, but are uniquely distinct in their roles and responsibilities, all right? So let's get into the text. Here's point number one. Paul says to the men, men avoid divisiveness and instead pursue humble prayer. Men avoid divisiveness and instead pursue humble prayer. He addresses that just in one single verse, verse 8, where Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, 
lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. You guys remember, if you were here last week, um, Brian did that, that great sermon kind of unpacking prayer and the way that it works, and it's important in God's global purposes throughout the world. And so this is coming on the heels of that. And Paul's saying, like, so therefore, you know, like, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, we've seen already in 1 Timothy that there were all kinds of arguments going on in the church, Right? There were the false teachers who could sort of kind of made their way into the pews, made their way into the leadership ranks of the church. They were stirring up trouble everywhere that they went, leading people away from the gospel and stirring up division and quarreling among all the different uh, uh, groups of men. And Paul says to this church, he says, hey, men, how about instead of that, instead of that, you just get together and pray in every place. Pray together. There's no place that God's people can't pray. And so he says, in every place, pray together. Lift your holy hands without fighting. Instead of lifting your hands against one another, how about you lift them together and pray? Now, what's the significance about this image here that he talks about lifting up your hands, right? Now, now if, if you pay attention, you understand that, like, if you, if you lift your hands, if you, if you use your hands, it kind of illustrates more, right? Let me try that again. If you use your hands, move them around, you can kind of illustrate more, 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 more oomph kind of like pops out, like it pours out into, into your communication. And sometimes what we're trying to communicate from in here, when we're passionate, when, we're, when we're, our affections and our loves and our desires are stirred, sometimes what we're trying to communicate from in here begins to pour out into our, our body language, right? It comes out as our passions expressed. And we see this. We see this language about lifting up our hands all throughout the Psalms, don't we? We raise up holy hands. We see that, that language all throughout the Psalms. What you do with your hands is often just the overflow of what's going on in someone's heart. But it's not so much about what you need to be doing with your hands, because you could also fake that, right? So it's not just about what you do with your hands, but in how these holy hands of prayer contrast with the kind of hands that were thrown down and quarreling, right? That's why he says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, right? Without doing that. I think a lot of guys will, will say things like, I don't know, man, I'm not really a hand person. I'm not a gesture person. I'm just not, I'm just not a passionate dude, right? I don't emote in that way. When you, press, when you press someone on that, you'll often find that that's not actually true, right? Now, we're talking in general, general, generalisms here, right? Is that a word? Generalisms? Sure. G generalities? Okay, generalities, generalizations, right? So, you know, pick, pick one, right? So we're going to go with that. But, um, but that's what we're speaking of here, right? And so this is, think of it like a proverb, right? Proverbs are truisms, okay? And so uh, they're not promises. So it's not saying that like, hey, if you, if you use your hands in these ways, that means you're a holy person. That's not what's happening here. He's just talking like generally speaking. A lot of guys will say like, I'm, I'm, I'm not really a passionate dude. But if you press them, you find out that generally speaking, that's not true. What you just need to find is the right object of their passion, right? Whether it's a sports team, politics, stock market, science, crypto, 
how your family or your fantasy football team is going, Star Wars canon, MCU canon, I don't know, pick your thing, right? Like, I got this one friend that's like one of the, one of the driest, shyest, like most subdued guys you know, but man, once you get him talking about like uh, the latest rumblings in the stock market news, suddenly like homeboy can talk. Right? Suddenly he knows things. Suddenly he learns how to express himself and he won't stop, right? There's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with getting your heart stirred by what's going on with the Dow Jones today. But know that the best place to express your passions and delights is when you're in the presence of God. When you're in the presence of God, when you're considering his purposes. Paul says, men, look, you know how to be passionate. Be passionate, lift up your hands, not for trivial things, not for quarreling and arguing and divisiveness. Lift up your hands in prayer. Turn your affections on Jesus and his church. How about we be passionate about that? How about instead of raising your fists to fight, you lift your hands to pray? Men are usually not passionate about worshiping the things of God and God himself. We're not usually passionate about worshiping God and the things of God. Uh, Ever since the first chapters of the Bible, men have abdicated their responsibility to worship God rightly, to lead their families in following Jesus. Uh, <coughs> demographic studies will tell us that most men, like an alarming high percentage of men, who self-identify as Christians, don't go to church. That's a huge problem, right? How can you call yourself a Christian, which means a disciple of Jesus, which is a follower of Jesus, and not have any concerns so whatsoever with connecting with the people of Jesus. You can't, you, I mean, you can't do that, right? So as a church, look, we want, as a local church, as King's Cross, we want every man who visits this church to connect with other godly men who are following Jesus. We want to help men mature and grow into what it means to lead their home and to live humbly for God's glory and for the good of others. And so look, Paul says here, he says, instead of lifting your hands to quarrel, lift up your hands in prayer. You've got to choose the one or the other. You can't have it both ways. Do you know the Bible makes it clear that the spiritual health of your relationships can and will impact your prayer life? In 1 Peter 3, husbands are told to honor their wives with gentleness and with grace or else their prayers are going to be hindered. The point is this, it's really hard, really hard to be at odds with someone when you're praying for them. And it's really easy for, for, for division to sort of creep in between brothers when prayer is, is just absent. And the goal is for the household of God, God's church, for the household of God to be a pillar of truth, not a cave for quarreling. And men of the world have a habit of talking down to each other and talking against each other, like behind closed doors or, 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 or behind each other's backs, right? But the men of God, no, oh, men of God, well, let's be different. Men of God have the habit of getting together to pray for one another, to pray for the church and to pray for the nations. That's what Brian talked about last week, right? We have a calling from God to lift up our global church in prayer. There's a lot to pray for. And Christian men won't let their egos get in the way of those prayers. And so just practically speaking, maybe ask these follow-up questions um, during, before you take communion today. Um, did you know that, that um, one of the things that we're encouraged to do before we take communion in order to take it rightly is to, is to consider 
if there's any animosity or any bitterness in our hearts against somebody else. If we've got any sort of beef or arguments or quarreling going on, and he says, hey, why don't you go put, put down the bread, put down the wine, go take care of that uh, before you, you partake in the body of Christ. Because you, you want that to be meaningful. You want that to be meaningful. You want, as you, as you eat the, the bread that signifies Jesus' body broken and drink from the cup, which signifies his blood spilt, and that unites you with other brothers and sisters throughout this meal that unites you with other brothers and sisters throughout time and throughout the world, right? You want that to be meaningful. And so, hey, look, if you got anything that's keeping you from, from, from real, authentic, like connected fellowship with somebody, go take care of that before you have this meal, right? Let's act like this meal matters. And so maybe ask a follow-up question before communion today. Are you harboring anger or bitterness towards a brother or sister in your life right now? Is there conflict, anger, or bitterness between you and a brother or sister? And if there is, if there is, I want to encourage you that the first thing you do before, before taking the bread and the cup is to go make it right with that person before you do. So avoid divisiveness and pursue humble prayer, men. Number two, women, avoid distracting others and instead pursue Christ-like modesty. Women, avoid distracting others and instead pursue Christ-like modesty. Read verse 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 2 with me. Uh, Paul continues, and he says, likewise, which means in the same manner, and so, in other words, like the same kind of vision and heart he has for the men, for, for their holiness and for their health, he also has for the women. And so he says, verse 9, likewise, in the same way, that women should adorn themselves in respectable uh, apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All right, shoot. Who came, who came to church with braids today? Anyone? All right, all right, my sister did. Mm, not surprised, not surprised. Uh, so does this mean, does this, does this really mean that women can't braid their hair or wear designer clothing to church? Is it wrong for a woman to get all dolled up and for her to smell clean? Gosh, I hope not, right? <laughs> Obviously, there's some interpretive issues that we need to work through here. And so we need to ask, okay, regarding these verses, what here is cultural and what here is timeless, all right? The cultural things we need to understand apply to that context, but then the timeless things apply to all God's people throughout time and places, all right? And so when we step into the culture that Paul is speaking to, what we know is that, uh, what we know is a few things. One, Ephesus, uh, where this church is, that, that Timothy's pastoring. Ephesus was a city of cities, right? Lots of people there, uh, lots of stuff happening there, and because of that, it was home of one of the first church plants, right? That's why Timothy's there. Uh, he was raised up to pastor this church. Um, it's also a community. Ephesus was a community that was filled with sexual immorality, filled with promiscuity. The city uh, had this temple uh, erected to the, t uh, to the Greek goddess uh, uh, named Artemis. And every night, prostitutes would come out from the temple wearing these ornate jewelry that they decorated themselves in in order to draw attention to themselves and seduce men while they were uh, on their way to the market, on their way to worship, uh, on their way home. Uh, it was also a community that was affluent. And so uh, there were a lot of women who would sometimes dress 
because they were fluent in order to attract uh, others, following the same example that was left to them by the temple prostitutes. Now, some women came to saving faith in Jesus. That's what's happening, all right? Some women at this church had been in one of those two categories, all right? Uh, And they've now come to saving faith in Jesus. Praise God for that, all right? But some of them were still influenced by the habits and values of the temple women. And so they either flaunted their appearance in order to attract others or to, in order to say something about their value or their status uh, in society by kind of showing off. But both of these things would be obviously distractions in our worship, right? When a church is gathered, that kind of uh, behavior would be a distraction in worship. And so, so Paul says to these women, he says, look, women, you don't, you don't have to do that anymore, right? That's the old you. Let's see the new you in Christ. You don't have to do that anymore because you're born again with Jesus. And because the spirit of God has made you new, you don't have to dress like that anymore. You don't need to act like that anymore. You don't need to find your identity, find your satisfaction in those things anymore because Jesus meets your deepest need now. And because he meets your deepest need, you don't need to seek validation from anybody else. David Zoll calls this the soulmate myth. He's got this short and beautiful line in one of his books. He says, the soulmate myth commands that we be perfectly loved. Grace announces that we already are. I look back at the text. Instead of values for women, to, uh, to, instead of um, you, you know, women um, uh, trying to attract attention from others, it says that, he says that the values for women to pursue are modesty, and self-control. Modesty and self-control. Now, the reason these two is because this was a distraction in worship, right? These women that were dressing in a way and acting in a way in order to draw attention to themselves, that was a distraction in worship. And so what they were doing was distracting all the men that were in their vicinity. Does that mean that there's no room for creative expression in fashion? No, that's not what that means, right? Within reason, obviously. But there are some churches, uh, for example, uh, there are some churches today that will insist that proper dress for a man is, is like a, a three-piece suit, and a proper dress for a woman is like a really long dress, like a, 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 a sundress with like a bonnet on her, on her head, right? And look, those kinds of rules, I think, are an overreach that violates the principle of Christian liberty that was reclaimed in the Reformation. Plus... Rules like that, I think, entirely miss the point. Like, if we were to apply a rule like that uh, uh, in our day and age, uh, in this particular South Orange County context, like, if I wore a three-piece suit, like, that would actually be a distraction, right? That would be a distraction in our context. And so the greater point is this, all right? The greater point is, are you drawing attention to yourself because you're more concerned with what people think than you are with what your God thinks? Or ladies, do you maybe have a a flirtatious personality and you, you try to draw attention that way? Paul would say, man, just, just knock it off. Grow up. Care for your brothers. What is truly beautiful is modesty. What is truly beautiful is self-control. It's not about being worshipped yourself. It's about worshiping God. That's the point. That's the point that should be happening in these gatherings. You see, the emphasis is internal character over 
our external appearance. And the Bible, is, the Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, God focuses on the heart because we have a tendency to cover up what's in our heart by our external appearance. We have a tendency to cover up our sins, our flaws, and the things that we don't like about ourselves by, by appearing to others more put together. Men will use their performance to cover up what they don't like inside. Women have a tendency to use their appearance. And the idea of this text is that God doesn't care about any of those things. He doesn't care about what you've got going on on the outside. But in verse 10, look at what he says again. He says, what is proper for women who profess godliness is good works. Good works. Notice what he says there. Notice, what is a godly woman should be adorned by? Gucci, Skims, right? Madewell. No, none of those. I'm not knocking those brands, right? But what he's saying is good works. Like, that's what's more important. It's character. Paul's exposing a problem here. He's saying to the women, don't wear clothing that draw attention to yourself. Don't desire positions that draw attention to yourself. Instead, be committed to virtuous good works. That's what's really hot, Paul says. My paraphrase. If you... Uh, Look at Proverbs 31, kind of this description of like the quintessential like woman of God, right? In the end, the very last verse of Proverbs 31, it says this about the Proverbs 31 woman. It says, let her works praise her in the gates. Let her works speak for themselves. I'm so thankful that we have women like this at our church. I'm so thankful that my daughter gets to grow up learning from many of the women in, in this room, in the classrooms in the hall. He says, women, avoid distracting others. Instead, pursue Christ-like modesty. This is our last point, number three, honor the beauty of distinct gender roles. Number three, honor the beauty, the beauty that is found in distinct gender roles. Uh, read verses 11 through 15 uh, with me. Now, bear with me, because these are doozy, all right? Uh, so verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now look, I know those verses are a head scratcher. All right, so what do we do with this? Let me start by saying this. The problem... The problem at playing the Ephesians church or the Ephesian church was a, a misunderstanding between the nature of, of men and women and their gender roles, right? But look, let's look at the first command here in verse 11. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. What's the first command in that verse? Learn. The first command is learn. Now, look, that might not seem significant to you, but if you knew what uh, ancient temple life was like back then, women were not allowed to learn about spiritual things. They weren't allowed to learn doctrine or theology with the men. And what does Paul do here? He says, no, boys, you let those women learn. Let them learn. Let them learn. Let them let study with you. The original readers of this verse, they would have had their minds blown by what Paul is doing here. He's saying that women should be students of God's word, students of the scriptures. 
That command there elevates the woman in their day. That command elevates women in our day. The Greek woman, she lived a confined life. She didn't appear at meals. She didn't appear at public assemblies. But Christianity comes in, breaks into the scene, and starts teaching something so revolutionary that women and men are created equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity, and that both can have access to the things of God through Jesus Christ. So women, I want you to know that theology is not just for the boys. All right? Theology is not just for the boys. It's for the ladies, too. I love, uh, I love what Jen Woken, um, one of our friends who's uh, a woman's uh, leader in uh, Village Church in Texas, she wrote a great little book called Women of the Word. Uh, and in that book, she says this. She says, when women grow increasingly lax in their pursuit of biblical or Bible literacy, in other words, understanding the Bible, knowing how to read it, When they do that, when they grow increasingly lax in their pursuit of Bible literacy, everyone in their circle of influence is affected. Rather than acting as salt and light, we become bland contributions to the environment that we inhabit and shape, indistinguishable from those who have never been changed by the gospel. And so home, church, community, and country desperately need the influence of women who know why they believe what they believe, grounded in the word of God. They desperately need the influence of women who love deeply and actively the God proclaimed in the Bible. Men, women, let's let's be be a generation of women who, who lives that out, who hungers for the scriptures, who has an appetite for the things of God. You see, Paul affirms the same thing that Jen Wilkin does in his own writings. In Galatians 3, Paul says that there's no value distinction now between men and women. That that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, we're now equal in value, dignity, and worth. He often commends women in his letters, right? He lived off the hospitality of women, and he mentions that in his letters. Other philosophers and teachers of the time, uh, in Paul's time, like Greek philosophers and, 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 and other thinkers, like they never mentioned women. But women were key. They were key to the spread of Christianity. They were key to the first century church. They're key to Paul the Apostles, and they're still key today. You see, back then there was a culture where some rabbis refused to teach women. The Romans, they oppressed women. Families would often abandon their girls on trash heaps, only for them to be taken up into prostitution or slavery. And so Paul here, he's reflecting Jesus, who, who valued elevating women who were the first witnesses at the empty tomb that he rose from. The Bible does not teach a value difference between men and women. Let me be clear on that. But it does teach a difference in our roles and responsibilities. All right? The first thing Paul says, he says, women should learn quietly and in all submissiveness. Now, why would he say that? Does this mean that women don't have a voice? Does this mean that they can never talk? No. That's not what it means. He's speaking to a cultural issue that happened in that time where women were being disruptive in the church, right? That's the context of what we're looking at. 
You see, the women in, in the area, they were attracted to Christianity because of the way that Christianity honored them, because of the way that Christianity honored women and spoke of the dignity of women. But there were a group of women who overreacted to the injustices of the culture by being boisterous everywhere they went. That included during worship. That's what Paul's addressing here. It doesn't mean that she can never talk. It, doesn't, it means that she should never disrupt and the use of this word submissiveness has to do with actually kind of lining up under the teaching of, of, of the elders, submitting under the body of teaching of the elders. She's to learn under the authority of her pastor and to not try and subvert that model. And listen, men should learn the same way too, just to be clear. But the reason that women are called out here is because this has become a problem in this particular church, all right? It's fine if you want to get like all Beyonce in a guy's face at the club or, or by the watering well, but you, you, like, you do you, girl, right, if you want to do that. But when you come to worship, you don't subvert the order of the church just because you're a little sassy, right? And again, I'm not like knocking on Beyonce, right? If you're like in the Bay Hive or whatever they call it, right, like more power to you. Um, uh, but my point is, uh, like there's a certain, uh, there's a certain uh, just sort of a demeanor and posture that might be uh, available out, uh, or uh, appropriate outside of the church. That means like, man, when you gather for worship, when you gather for the preaching of the word, for the receiving of the Lord's Supper, there's some behavior that is unbecoming for either men or women. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Now, he does say that women should not teach in some situations. He says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, there are a number of ways to interpret verses like this. We could do a whole sermon on it, but we're not. But what I am going to do is kind of sort of put our cards out on the table so that you know where we stand uh, on this particular topic as it relates to gender roles in the church. All right? So we have a few options when it comes to how to view gender roles. I'm just going to go through them really quick. Four bullet points. Number one uh, is what we might call radical feminism. Okay? Now, radical feminism teaches this. It says men don't matter. They only do bad. They only oppress. And so they need to be handled. They need to be taken care of. Only women do good. And so let's give them the full brunt of the power. All right? Now, this is, again, I'm not saying that forms of feminism haven't been good and helpful in our recent history, but we're calling this radical feminism. That says that men don't matter. And let me be clear. Guys can be absolute idiots, and they often are. They often are. Men can be outright wicked and oppressive, but the answer is not to erase men, but to redeem them. And so uh, radical feminism, that's not us, okay? The next option is what we might call radical patriarchy. Now this goes to the other extreme. Rad the radical patriarchs, what they'll say is women can't be trusted. They're too emotional. They always mess everything up. And so they, should, we, they shouldn't lead. They should just stay in the kitchen and make our sandwiches. All right? I saw this viral post on Twitter the other day. A Christian pastor telling men on Twitter, brothers, a friendly reminder, make sure your wife votes exactly as you do. Make sure that that gets done. Right? Like she doesn't have her own opinions and she doesn't have her own voice. Right? But listen, that's wicked and oppressive. All right? It's jerks in this camp that make the radical feminists feel like they need to rise up and be a thing. The next category is what we might, what we might call uh, egalitarianism, all right? So this would be like center left, all right? And egalitarianism argues that both men and women are equal, in essence, dignity, value, and roles. Um, 
but that our differences are only in biological makeup. We're basically virtually identical and interchangeable in every other way. Interchangeable meaning um, interchangeable in who can serve uh, in different offices in, in the church, who can be the head of the household, uh, who can be uh, uh, the, the head of a church. Uh, women, they, they would say that a woman can serve as a pastor or an elder or a bishop. Uh, there's no meaningful distinction between men and women in the home or in the church uh, other than their biology. All right? Uh, that's not us either. Um, here's where we would land. We would call ourselves complementarians. Complementarians. Now, in complementarianism, we also teach that both men and women are equal in essence, dignity, and value. Absolutely. We would never argue against that. But we would say that there are differences, meaningful differences, in our roles and responsibilities. And that under God's under God's sovereign lordship, husbands are to loving and sacrificially lead his family. Wives are to respect and follow that leadership. Children are to honor and obey their mother and father in the home. And the household of God, the church of God, is pastored by qualified men who've proven themselves first in the home. And everything that I just said is just a number of different Bible verses all chopped up and put together for you. That is what we believe to be the biblical view. Complementarianism, right? Uh, in other words, we, we complement one another, right? We understand these, these differences are real, and they're meaningful, and they're purposeful. God didn't make any mistakes here. And so when Paul says, do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, what he's saying is that women should not teach in an authoritative way for the church, in the role of a pastor from the Sunday pulpit, right? Women are free to serve in a number of roles, but not as a pastor, I know that's not culturally popular to say uh, in our day. Like if you go in a big city where there's like prosperity gospel churches all around, you're like, you often see a church with like this big, huge billboard sign of a pastor and his wife, like the first lady, right? Uh, and they'll say senior pastors, both of them. Now, <clears throat> does this mean, does this mean that women can never be in any leadership position in the church, right? We've established like women cannot serve in the pastoral role. But does this mean that she cannot serve in any leadership position in the church? The answer is no, all right? Under the elders of the church, women are free to lead in a number of different ways uh, of teaching, again, outside of the Sunday pulpit, and praying, and serving, and leading, and mobilizing, and organizing, and things like that. Notice how Paul grounds his argument here that the office of elder and leader, lead teacher be, being only for qualified men. Uh, notice how he grounds his argument. Does he appeal to culture? No, look at verse 13. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And in verse 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He says, look, there's a design from God since the beginning for how this thing, these things pan out in the home and in the church and the way things are ordered. There is a design from God's hand, from his mind. There is a design that helps men flourish, a design that helps women flourish, where the home is a place that discipleship happens. Look, in the church, women should learn. They should learn the things of God. In the church, men should learn too. But men by God's design are like pastor elders in their home. They're called to lead, to serve, to guide, and to protect their families, and they're called to die to themselves. That's why one of the requirements of an elder pastor uh, in the church is that he leads and loves his household well. Because a man who is not willing to sacrifice for his wife and kids is not the kind of man who's going to do that for a church body. 
We're actually going to talk more about that next week when we look at 1 Timothy 3 and the role of responsibilities that men have. But as we close, let me say this. The problem is often that men are either passive or abusive. The problem is that women often want to rule and dominate. Adam's sin was passivity. The woman's sin, according to these verses, was not trusting the Lord. And here is what's wild. Verse 15, it says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What? She'll be saved through childbearing? What does he mean? And we know that Paul can't be saying that childbearing will determine a woman's salvation. We saw this in our assurance of salvation earlier, Ephesians 2.8. We're saved by grace through, alone, through faith alone. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And so he's not using the term saved to talk about our eternal redemption. What we see, <clears throat> excuse me, is that Eve was deceived by thinking that she needed more than what she had. She was deceived by thinking she needed more than what she had. And Paul here is saying, look, daughters of Eve can be saved from that same deception when they see how high a calling it is to honor the Lord. When they see how high a calling it is to raise a child, something that women in the home and women in the church have a unique gifting and capacity to do. See, men and women hear this. God has created you as a man or as a woman, and there's deep significance underneath that. And so to my sisters in the room, you are working out your salvation as a woman of God, specifically wired, formed, and gifted for the glory of God to shine forth through you in a way that is distinct and beautiful and unique uh, from his glory being made known through a man. And to my brothers, let's be assertive in pursuing holiness and not in quarreling or disputes. And for all of us, let us look to King Jesus who although he's the king above all kings, he adorned himself not with a crown of gold, but with a crown of thorns. And he was draped not in fine royal linen, but in blood-stained linen. He had everything stripped away from him so that we could receive ultimate value, ultimate worth, ultimate dignity as sons and as daughters of the living God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.